This is Wayne McCullough with Simple Talk Radio, reporting in from Dallas, Texas, as always at KPEX Studio, sitting here with my awesome producer, Kevin Eveling. It's good to see you, Wayne. Happy New Year. Thank you. Kevin E. Productions. Check him out when you can. We're excited about his new studio once again, and it's fun for me. I got to say welcome back, listeners, because as I track our numbers, we actually have quite a few listeners now. So as always, I'm very excited just to be with you all, the people who take the time to listen. As you know, we cover the big five in life, the five Fs, faith, family, friends, fitness, and finances. And, and as I always stress, how you order those is up to you. I put faith first because I think everything falls in line behind that. But so as we go, as I meet people in life, my goal really is to pull these interesting people into your life and see if they can speak into one of those areas. Oftentimes, it might be a rifle shot into one of those areas. Our guest today, I think, will actually really dig into almost almost all of those. So I'm excited to have David Scoggins on today. Um, David, I'm going to tell a little bit about you, and then one thing I'll say is you're very smart. I would put David, I like smart people because they really speak into my life. Uh, David is one of the smartest individuals I've met. I very rarely get to say, do I have a Hall of Fame businessman on who was a Hall of Fame businessman before the age of 30? And I think I'd love it if you got into a little bit of that story. And, and, sure. and I think I know you don't reference the company, but I think I know what you're talking about there. You, you know, the reality is David is a life coach, a spiritual coach, a business coach. He wants people to improve their lives. And, and I want to say this up front and in full disclosure, David actually is coaching my team and my business and myself throughout 2020. So really, really excited to see what 20, the kind of fruit it will bear working directly with David. Uh, David and I met at church, of all places, Park City's Baptist, our home church, which we both love, um, and it's just been a fruitful relationship. You know, David's intelligence, he's an MA in theology from Gordon Cornwell Seminary, a THM in Christian from Fuller Seminary, um, and he went to graduate school for performance psychology, and I, if I have it right, spoke seven languages before he got out of high school. Where <laughs> That's, my, That was not written in the bio, but well, it is true. But I know that. And, and I did not speak seven languages by how much I was out of high school, but oh, I like to know people that do. So, David, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, so, I mean, I think we'll hop right in it. You know, what I think would be interesting to people, and we are really in the beginning, we're in the beginning of a new decade, as we mm -hmm. both know. Mm -hmm. We're in the beginning of a new year, and, and everyone feels inspired or inclined to get better. So, I think it's perfect to have you on mm -hmm. because you're really at the end of the day trying to help people live a better life. I mean, it sounds simple, mm -hmm. but it's a, it's a journey of growth. But as Dr. George Burris would say, at the end of the day, everybody comes to see him because they want to feel better. Mm. And that's just the reality for all of us. So I, I think people would love to hear some of your background, and then you know we can hop into practical steps is, is what we can do to improve people's lives. Sure, sure. Um, so basically you're looking for that Genesis story. Yeah. Right. Whatever that means to you. Okay. Well, you know, I'll go back to the beginning because I think that's that's really where things where things that are significant that show up later mm -hmm. start for people. I think that's something that a lot of people miss. I think it's something that it's it's often the case that people uh, have heard that you know things when you're really young affect you later. It's not always as easy for people to connect those dots. For me, in my early childhood, there were two major things that really, really impacted me. And one was uh, accepting Jesus. Yep. I was at HPPC, Highland Park Presbyterian Church, and I was at a, uh, a, a thing for youth. I mean, I was really, really young, four or five, maybe six years old, maybe, maybe seven, but I'm pretty sure younger than that. And I was told, you know, Jesus wants into your heart, and he can only come in if you accept him. I remember, and I pictured in my mind, Jesus, like, outside my heart. My heart was like a house. And he wanted to come in, and he was lonely. And I was like, come on in, Jesus. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it may sound like just something that a, a kid said because he was told to say or something like that. But for me, that was profoundly, that, that was really important to me. That was very meaningful to me, uh, even at that young age. So that was one thing. And the second thing was uh, my parents' divorce. My parents had been married, and uh, I did not know that there was anything wrong. But they divorced when I was seven and that really really profoundly impacted me you know a boy from roughly age you know zero to a, a, around age 13 the biggest question a boy has is is am i loved mm -hmm. 
And what happened there confused me about whether or not I was loved. And that became something that would have a lot of impact on me throughout my life. And I'll kind of get to that as we go. But as I grew older, I was really, really alienated from pretty much everyone except for a small group of friends. I was alienated in a lot of ways from my parents, from much of my family, from uh, you know what I saw as uh, teachers, any authority figures, uh, from everybody except for a really small group of friends. So out of a you know I would be in uh, you know my my high school graduating class, and I was in the same school system K through twelve, and my high school graduating class was probably four hundred people, but there were probably only like twelve people who actually thought like you know people that I really cared about. It was kind of like us versus everybody else, and that was something that I carried with me for a very 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 long time. And one of the things that happened when I was in high school was I was profoundly unhappy. And I went to therapy and I was given drugs and um, the therapy helped a little. I don't know if the drugs helped at all. I think I thought they did. Um, But what really helped was... um, you know, I was in therapy and I was just, and, and instead of the therapist, I was just like, I want to get through this as quickly as possible because I hate feeling this way. And this was in high school? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was like, I hate feeling this way. I, 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 I got to get through this quick. What do, what do you got for me? And, and she recommended a book and the book's called Feeling Good by David Burns, B-U-R-N-S. It's a good book. And it has, it had exercises in it where I could kind of like, you know, journal my way through the stuff I was dealing with and it worked. And I remember thinking, I remember just being so deeply impacted by that, by the fact that, that I didn't have to feel terrible all the time. And it was something that I took with me. I'd even, I'd even go to a friend's house and start feeling awful. And I would excuse myself and like, you know, I'd act like I was going to the bathroom or something, but I was really, I was, I was going and I was doing my little exercise to not feel terrible. So, so let, me, let me interject there. I'm, sure. I'm impressed that you would go to a therapist. Because most teens won't. Oh, I demanded right? it. Like, I was that's like, "That's really unique." Honestly. Yeah, yeah. I, I fought for it. I, I told. I I remember telling my parents like, "I need to go to therapy," and they're like, "Are you sure?" And I was like, "Yeah, I'm sure." Yeah, please. That's that's great. <laughs> yeah. And you found somebody good, which is good. Yeah, yeah and they that, were recommending books, and I went and got the book and yeah. read it and did all yeah. the exercises and everything. Um, another big thing that really impacted me in high school was, uh, I learned performance. And I learned to become obsessed with learning. As far as performance, you know, zero to 13, a young man's thinking, am I loved? Age 13 to 18, 20 or so, he's thinking, do I have what it takes? And that's why, you know, a teenage boy is, is looking to test himself in so many different ways. He wants to test himself in sports, test himself academically, test himself. It could be in the debate club. It could be on the chess team. It could be, the, it could be as, uh, in the football team. But he's thinking, do I have what it takes? And I got to test myself in all these different arenas. Uh, you know, I took nine AP exams. I've learned all those languages. Those languages were about, for me, the languages were about having a place where I could win. I didn't know that at the time. But they helped form, you know, makes you think of like Shawshank Redemption. Uh, where this man's been sent to a prison for a crime he didn't commit. And he's just this amazing person. And, and <clears throat> he's described as having a, an invisible coat that protects him from the place that he's in. And for me, things like languages and having those relationships with the, with the, with the small group of friends and things like that, that was that coat for me that protected me from the rest of the world that I thought I needed protection from. Turns out I didn't. The world wasn't nearly as awful as I thought it was. But... Because of the, you know, you've talked about narrative. Because mm-hmm. of the narrative that I had, that this world is awful and I can't trust these people, uh, the narrative that I, you know, learned from a younger age, that I, the limiting decision that I made, which had nothing to do with with my parents. You know, they did what they did. Uh, this was on me. This was decisions I made. And I wasn't old enough to understand that I was making those decisions, but that was the decision that I made. And <clears throat> so I learned that I had what it takes, but I also learned that the world is awful and that I should basically hate everyone except for people who I'm friends with. So that was good, but, <laughs> you know, and I had, I had committed my life to Jesus when I was really, really young. But there was, you know, after my parents divorced, there was not a significant amount of follow-up with that. Uh, you know, I wasn't involved in youth group, wasn't involved in K-Life, 
wasn't involved in in any anything that was meaningful and the friends that i trusted were uh, were not in any way people of faith and so while that commitment was still meaningful to me if someone had asked me you believe the bible's word of god you believe jesus is the way to heaven there's all if someone asked me all of the, the questions i had the right answers but i didn't really have any clear idea of what it meant to live as a christian and right after high school I got sent on a chrysalis flight, which is the walk to Emmaus for children. It's a, it's a three-day like immersion in the love of God. And I cried straight for three days, and I was like, I want more of this. When you say got sent, what does that mean? Uh, it's, 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 who it, sent you? She was actually my girlfriend at the time. Okay, so she, she encouraged you to <laughs> Yeah, yeah. She was just like, yeah. yeah, you have to have a sponsor. It's, okay. it's, it's a pretty elaborate thing. But, uh, and I didn't really know what I was getting into. I was just like, she was just like, there's a retreat, and you get to learn more about God. And I was like, hey, sounds great to me. And so I was really open to that. And then I go off to college, and I'm, in, yeah, I'm going to church like you know, four or five days a week. I'm going to church on Sunday, Bible study Thursday, InterVarsity Wednesday, you know, freshman prayer Mondays, and really, really, really dove in. And I first, you know, most people, the typical narrative is you come to know Jesus as he forgives you for your sins. And I really came to know Jesus as someone who can heal me from my pain, much more than someone who can forgive me for bad things I had done. I hadn't, I didn't really think I had done anything bad. I thought bad things had been done to me, mm-hmm. you know, going, but, you know, deepening that narrative, you know, it's, it's, it's not me, it's everybody else, you know? And so I was angry. Um, I wanted to have a happy family more than anything. And for me, you know, I wanted, I wanted to get married. I wanted to have children. And I didn't want to do that necessarily at that exact age, but I, was, but I was definitely looking for, you know, for that relationship that would lead to that. And I didn't fully understand this at the time, but later I realized that some of that was almost like, I want to have a happy family as a way of proving that it can be done. It was almost like my revenge on, you know, what I perceived to be injustices against me. And, you know, the idea of having a happy family is revenge against other people is not, <laughs> yeah. it's not how it works, yeah, right? It's like, that's like Batman, Dark Knight backstory. <laughs> wow. Um, and, and another thing that, that, was, that was troubling me when I was in college is I felt like there weren't people who were thinking as deeply as I was about, there weren't very many. I would ask questions that I thought were hard about my faith and about the world. And I just didn't find the answers I was getting very satisfactory. And ultimately, that's why I went to seminary. Um, So I went to seminary mainly because I had questions and I wanted answers and I figured seminary would be a good place to get that. And on the one, and there's a certain sense in which it was and there's another sense in which it really, really wasn't. it was good because the more difficult the question was, the easier it was to get an answer when I was at seminary. I go in with a really hard question, and I meet with a professor one-on-one, and they say, oh, that's a great question. You know what? I've actually taught a seminar on that every year for the past 20 years, and I wrote a book on it. Here's my book. If you want something easier to read, here's this, and if you're looking for something really thick, here's a two-inch book on this subject. And I had never run into it. Everyone else who had asked that question would either give me a really simple like answer that really didn't work, or they would basically say, "Why are you asking questions like this? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, no one else thinks like this. Like, you know, kind of like what's wrong with you?" Um, and so I found this this niche of intellectually bent, uh, you know, serious, committed Christians. The problem was the simpler the question was, the less I could answer it. So the question was something like, what's the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament? I could, get, I could write a whole paper on that. The question was something like, you know, what, you know, about eschatology, the book of Revelation, or charismatic gifts, or things like this that, that would generally be considered you know, kind of touchy topics. I could talk about that a lot. But it was something like, okay, what does a Christian do that makes a Christian different from your average everyday person who's just a good person? So, so let me ask you something, because this has always intrigued me. And this will this question will lead to another. Were you connecting with God from a heart place or intellectually? Can you answer that? Yeah, sure, sure. At that time, in different at different times in different ways. And the uh, reason I ask, I have a friend who's genius, brilliant, smart. And he would mm-hmm. say he has a very hard time connecting mm-hmm. through the heart. But mm-hmm. what's interesting to me is he 
loves tearing the Bible apart. He finds he, scripture he finds fascinating. Like he literally connects through the intellectual path. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's harder, frankly. But so you at different times you're experiencing different. Yes, like you know, like for example, uh, at that retreat, yeah, profound contact at the heart level. All of my freshman year, heart, heart, heart. Sophomore year, heart, heart, heart. And it really started getting more difficult as when I at my junior senior year of, of college and the heart connection just it wasn't there at the level that it had been before. And I didn't know why and I wasn't sure what to do about it. I was I was going through, you know, something like a dark night of the soul and I didn't I didn't have a language for that. I didn't have a theo- I didn't have a belief system that would that would address that. And and not only that, but I didn't really even have anyone to talk to about it either. So did seminary help that or exasperate it? Neither. It it uh, it helped it a little bit. What it did was it. What I'm driving to is at some point you have to have a relationship with Jesus. Of course, right? absolutely, yeah. absolutely. The relationship was there, but it was. What's the right way to say this? What seminary did was it turned down the volume on some of my some of my sense of alienation because when you when you go to someone with a question that you actually have a sincere question and they tell yeah. you you're dumb for asking the question you know uh, or they give you a pat answer and act like that's 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 like a good answer um, it dials up your drama instead mm-hmm. of turning it down so seminary turned the volume down on my drama but it did not it did not specifically connect me closer to God but a big part of what was happening while I was at seminary, I met my wife at orientation, and we were married nine months later. Perfect. So that was taking up a lot of my, a lot of my attention. And the baby was due right then. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, that's a joke. <laughs> no, we did not even. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. So wow, but that was. That's a you know, a, a sense of heightened emotion. I mean, that was a good thing, right? Which part? Meeting her. Oh my a, God! Yes. Yeah, oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. She was the absolute. She was and is the absolute woman of my dreams. Right. She was everything I had wanted, uh, and we were very happy together for uh, for quite some time before before anything became before before any problems entered. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I graduate seminary. We live in the Middle East for a year, which was, we were trying to see, you know, we thought maybe we were called to be missionaries. Turns out we weren't. There's, there's not a whole lot more of a story there. Um, and then I went to more seminary. At the time, I wanted to be a pastor, a professor, or a missionary. So I go from Gordon-Conwell to Fuller. And what had also happened, kind of parallel to that, when I was a senior at college, I was broken and needed money. And I prayed. I said, God, I need money. And the next day in the classroom on the chalkboard, someone had written in the upper left-hand corner of the chalkboard, need money, and there was a phone number. And I was like, oh, my God, this is a sign from God. And the, the guy sitting next to me leaned over. He's like, I bet that's a scam. And I was like writing down the number. And I got recruited into selling Cutco knives. Mm-hmm. And I was really, really, really good at it. And my, my first year of seminary, I paid cash for my degree uh, selling Cutco knives. And so that happened. And, I, and then I kind of got, once I got married, I kind of got away from that and, and became busy with other things. Uh, and then we moved to California. And by the time we moved to California, I'm back in that world. And I'm selling and I'm really, really, really good at the selling. So you moved to California, go back to work for Cutco. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And what was interesting, my time at Fuller, I got introduced to a mentor. His name was Glenn Stassen. And at the time, I had no idea how important he would become. He actually didn't really start to mentor me at the level that I realized he could and at the level that I needed until many years later after he had died. So a lot of these answers are right in front of me while I'm at Fuller. They, the answers that I wanted, I probably there's probably no such scenario in which I would have found them at Gordon Conwell based on where I was and just the type of studies I was pursuing and things like that. But the answers were right in front of me at Fuller. And here I am, I'm, I'm selling knives, I'm making a lot of money doing that. 
And I just became more and more frustrated with the church until eventually uh, I just told my wife, I was just like, I, I can't go anymore. And what I was frustrated with, there was a really long list of things I was frustrated with. But I think what I was fundamentally frustrated with, and I did not, I could not have articulated it in these words at the time, was that our, the problems in our culture were too much also problems in the church. I think what I really mean by that is that relationship building was way, 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 way too hard. And the things that were said in the churches I attended were just too superficial. And having superficial relationships with superficial teaching, I just couldn't, I just got to a point where I couldn't handle it. Mm -hmm. And I stopped going to church for like, several months i don't remember how long six months a year a year and a half it was a while and i remember one day i, I woke up and it was, it was actually on my birthday it was probably my 28th 29th birthday and i just looked at my wife and it was a sunday and i said let's go to church and we found a church and a church where we were actually able to build relationships and it certainly wasn't perfect but it was it was very much what we needed at the time and Cut that part short. Another really big thing happened, which was, you know, I have here in my notes, it just says Tony Robbins happened. Mm -hmm. Someone, my, my manager at the time, handed me this giant Tony Robbins CD set. It was 24 discs. And it was still in the shrink wrap. And he was like, yeah, I bought this a long time ago. You know, you're, you're into studying and, and like learning and growing and improving yourself and stuff like that. You know, maybe you'll actually open it and listen to it. And I listened to it. I remember turning on the first CD while I was like doing something else. And I couldn't keep doing what I was doing. I had to stop and listen. By the time I got to the end of the CD, I'd been so mesmerized just by his energy and his animation and the things he was talking about that I realized I didn't remember I think he had even said. So I immediately played it again. And I got more and more into that. And, and that started a really, really aggressive journey down that rabbit hole of personal development, personal growth, uh, Tony Robbins, John Maxwell, coaching, NLP, all of that stuff. And what I started finding was concrete answers to all the things that I felt like the church couldn't answer. Like things like, you know, um, where do your emotions come from? And why do you feel the way you feel? And what can you do about you know, how can how concretely and specifically, not what is a theology of anger or what does the Bible say about anger, uh, but actually like if you are angry, here's specific concrete things you can do to deal with your anger. Or same thing with other emotions, sadness, guilt, shame, things like that. Um, <clears throat> things that, uh, things like uh, relationship stuff that was so much more concrete and specific, um, you know, when <clears throat> about, communication and just just the list is really really long and it's just like oh my gosh this is all the practical stuff mm -hmm. oh it didn't have any type of uh larger meaning behind it which is what i got at seminary right what does everything mean and where's it all going and why do these things matter but at seminary i didn't get anything practical and i wasn't getting anything practical in any of the churches i was going to either and not only that at the time broadly speaking my life was pretty good and it seemed like every christian thing that i encountered presuppose that your life sucked. It was like every sermon started with, hey man, life's hard and everybody knows life's hard and I know your life is terrible, uh, but, but you don't have to throw it all away you know, because Jesus has a way. And it's like all the, all the Christian self-help books like started that way. And I was just like, you know, my life's not that bad. Like, do you have anything for, for, for me? And, you know, and then here I am in this, in this other world, this personal development world that has all of this stuff for me. And really frustrated me because I couldn't understand. You know, I, I'm trying to live a life here and, and I'm getting all these results from this personal development stuff and I'm just getting, you know, I'm, I'm not, I, like I don't understand the church should be able to do better at this. Mm -hmm. And then we moved to Ohio and uh, our entire world is completely collapsed. 
Um, you talk about the five F's, every single one of those F's plus other areas of our life that are not even mentioned. My, my professional life like completely fell apart. Um, the Cutco. Yes, uh, uh, sort of. It's, it's a little bit more complicated than that. But the short answer is, you know, the, the short version of this would, would be something like, uh, we moved to Ohio full of hope and thinking that, you know, just it's a long, you know, that, Sure, people thinking, why would you move from California to Ohio? And that was something people asked us a lot at the time. About my wife's family, my wife is from Ohio, her family is there. And so we moved there and we had family problems, we had financial problems, we had uh, we, the church that we, we had checked out a church before we went and we're, we're really hoping it was part of the same uh, church movement that we had been a part of in California. We, we check out this church and we go there and like three months after we got there, the church splits. And it wasn't like a short split, like, you know, one Sunday someone stands up and says they're leaving and then they're gone. It was like months and months of dragged out, like, you know, the, 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 you know just a mess. And we weren't, we hadn't been there long enough to take a side in any of this. So we've got a, a splitting church. We're having financial problems. My professional life is not, is falling apart. Just everything, you know. My wife, uh, we have we have a new baby, right? We basically had moved. Uh, my my daughter was uh, maybe one or two when we moved. Uh, my wife gets pregnant. She's way sicker while she's pregnant this time around, and we have so now we're dealing with you know a new baby, and just it was just a total mess. We were there for two and a half years, and when we sold, I'll, I'll put it this way. Um, we were just really, really ready to leave. And so we left, we come back to Texas and, you know, I grew up here in Texas and this is really where God started to open my eyes to things that I hadn't been able to see before. And I almost wonder, you know, it wouldn't surprise me and, and I would be okay if, if a lot of that suffering was just creating a baseline of fuel for me to be motivated to help people. Uh, because you know, when, you, when, you've, when you've not suffered, you haven't persevered, you know, your character's not developed, your persistence isn't developed. And you know, I think part of my ultimate mission here is to you know, bring a faith perspective into the personal development and bring the personal development perspective into the church. And I don't think that's an easy thing. Um, and so we come back to Texas and, you know, going back to the whole thing about being alienated, right? It's just me and a mm -hmm. few friends. In Ohio, things had gotten so bad for me mentally and emotionally that I felt alienated from pretty much everybody. And we'd been married for seven years and it really wasn't until everything started falling apart around us that we started having marriage problems. And so I felt just alienated from everyone. And I started reconnecting with, with many of those friends from my childhood who had been, you know, us against the world. And I'll never forget, because I had started to see, I had just, I had just become a lot more superficial with people than I had ever been in my mm -hmm. entire life. Uh, I'm, I'm not someone who's generally by nature superficial. And I'll never forget talking to one of those friends, who, someone who I hadn't seen in many, many years. And this friend just could not handle me being superficial and just said, stop it, cut it out. And I was like, what are you talking about? And she said, stop selling. And I was like, I'm not selling anything. She's like, yes, you are. Stop it. I said, I'm not, I'm, what are you talking about? She's like, she said, we don't want what you're selling. We want you. And if you're too stupid to understand that, then I don't want to be friends with you. And I needed to hear that so bad. <laughs> and it just really, really cut through to me. And that really became kind of the message as I started to realize that the people I had, I started to realize that, you know, number one, I didn't need to be alienated, but I also started to see, you know, rebuilding relationships and I started to see how these things fit together in a way that I had never seen before. I started to understand um, 
how our culture came to be the way it is and how that invaded the church and how the church came to be so superficial. Um, I started to see that I wasn't the only person thinking about this. You know, I started reading Dallas Willard and that really, really impacted me. And then I read a book of, of Glenn Stassen's, uh, you know, my mentor at Fuller, he had died mm -hmm. by then. And he has a book called <clears throat> Living the Sermon on the Mount. It's about 200 pages long and I read it. And I remember the first time I read it, I remember thinking, wow, if I had just read this instead of going to seminary, it would have been so much easier. Hmm. Because he takes, he, takes the, he takes the words of Jesus and he creates this entire biblical theology around it, which you know, is not nearly as complicated as it sounds. But basically it just explains like, what concretely we're being asked to do as Christians in specific actionable things you can do. And he makes them fit with the entire Bible. And I'd never seen that before. I mean, I'd seen the Bible fit together as this part relates to this part relates to this part, and this is how it tells one story. But I had never seen it in terms of, here's how you put Jesus as a center, not just as a, like, you know, Jesus is the gateway to heaven. You know, you got to go to Jesus to get your, your, your ticket stamped to get in. But, like, Jesus has a concrete, practical way for you to live. And he's explaining it right here in his teachings. And that had never really been clear to me which is really funny. I spent all that time in the church and in seminary and everything else, and it just it had never really clicked. And finally it did. And then I started reading Augustine. I read City of God. And that helped make things click. And just it just all started to become more and more clear. So, so at that time, had you moved on from Cutco into the world of coaching? Or was that it, was right around the time that I started moving specifically into coaching full time. And back in Dallas. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was okay. about it was roughly eight or nine months after I was in Dallas that I really started to focus exclusively on coaching full time. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but as a coach, I started really going back to the fundamentals, um, really just focusing on learning uh, ICF core skills, which is the International Coach Federation, is the body that certifies coaches, and they have a specific way they want coaching done. Coaching is not a regulated profession. Mm -hmm. So anyone, you know, you can't, if you're a therapist or if you practice acupuncture or you're a lawyer, you have to, you know, you have to be certified by the state in order to practice those things. To be a coach, all you need to do is tell people you're a coach and start charging them. And you, the content of coaching can be whatever you want it to be. Um, so, you know, there's, there's people who've made an effort to regulate that profession. And in, in, in that regulation, they've said, you know, this is what coaching is and this is what it's not. And I really started going back to those basics of both those ICF skills and of NLP skills and you know, using them on myself. And not only that, but really using them with clients. And I started to see breakthroughs with people that I was working with that were much more profound than the things I had seen before. Um, and not only that, but God really started working more in my heart and, you know, there were, there were a handful of really, really big moments there. One was, I don't even remember how this came about, but, you know, growing up, I had this interesting incident where I wanted a toy for Christmas. And I asked both my parents for it. I was divorced, right? So I asked both my parents for this toy. And I remember, it's funny, I've never told anyone, my, my, my wife's probably the only person who knows this story. But I remember uh, my dad getting something out of the closet and I saw that he had bought me this toy. It was like, you know, supposed to be hidden. And then on Christmas morning, I had spent the night Christmas Eve with my mom. And then the next morning, to, you know, my mom got me the toy. And so dad comes over to pick me up and I show him the toy. I said, dad, you never believe what I got for Christmas. Look at this toy. So we go over to dad's and I got all my Christmas toys, but I don't get that toy. Well, as an adult, it's very obvious. He saw that my mom had already bought it for me. So he put it away and he either gave it to charity or took it back or whatever, right? He didn't want to give me the toy that I had already gotten. But because I had seen it, I knew that he had gotten it for me. And believe it or not, I decided at that moment, as with all the intelligence and social awareness and understanding of family dynamics and my dad's finances and my mom's finances and everything else, with all of my, all of my awareness, I decided that this was proof that my dad didn't care about me because he had gotten me the toy, but he didn't give it to me. Mm -hmm. And 
a while ago, you know, because now we're getting closer to closer to now in the story. I was thinking about this, and it clicked in my brain that it was actually the exact opposite. That the fact that both my parents had gotten me the toy that they both knew that I wanted, it wasn't the proof that they didn't. It was a proof that they did. I don't know if it's proof, but but you know what I mean. That mm-hmm. that's, that's that, that was the real meaning. Not that they don't love me; it's that they do. So that flipped the narrative on that, and I was able to really accept. It was almost like it was like, you know, ding 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 ding, ding like my entire past. So much of my past with my parents was completely rewritten. Mm-hmm. You know, and that wasn't the only thing that did it. There were there were other things as well. And so now I'm able to receive not just the love of these close friends, but, you know, my parents' love. And then I have my 20-year high school reunion. I skipped the five-year, skipped the 10-year, skipped the 15-year. And the reason was, you know, and I'll never forget, when I was at my senior prom, as I was leaving, I was only there for like half an hour. And I left early, obviously, and I remember turning around, like right at the door, turning around and thinking, do I really want to leave after only half an hour? Do I want to leave this event that is supposed to be so important in a person's life and this, that, and the other? I remember just looking and just be like, you know what? I don't care about any of these people. So yeah, I do want to leave. You know, bitterness and whatever. So we go to the reunion and I didn't really want to go. I... Uh, and I, I basically, one of my very, very, very good friends was on the reunion committee. And I, and I just decided, okay, I'm going to go because I don't want to disappoint this good friend of mine and not show up. And what was so amazing to me was at the reunion, it was like people only remembered good things. Mm-hmm. Every moment of drama and negativity and pain, and people clicks, people making fun of each other, people breaking each other's hearts, like whatever happened that was bad, no one remembered and no one cared. There were people who I thought, oh, if I see that person, I've got to avoid them, who, when they saw me, their faces lit up. And it just completely flipped the script on that for me as well. And I realized that I thought that I had grown up. And not only that, but what, what was so meaningful to me was here's all these people who I haven't seen, 90% of them I haven't seen in 20 years. And they know me. They know me well. And it shows by the way they interact with me. Why? Because they grew up with me. Most of, many of these people, you know, starting in kindergarten, I had been with for my, they, they had a front row seat to my entire childhood. They were right there. And these were people who, they didn't just know me, they knew my siblings and I knew their siblings and they knew my parents and I knew their parents. Because we were on the same, you know, fill in the blank, you know, we were on the same sporting events or whatever. And, um, and so to really see that there's this many people who know me. And the other thing that I was expecting was a whole lot of like social status evaluation. Mm-hmm. You know, people looking at how much weight you've gained and how hot your spouse is and, you know, you say what you do for a living and then kind of mentally calculating how much you make and that kind of, I was expecting a lot of that and I was not looking forward to that. Um, you know, I think on those things, I've probably yeah, I've done all right, but like who wants to go and be evaluated and evaluate people for a few hours, right? Um, and there was none of that at all. Mm-hmm. No one cared. It was almost like, you know, it was in an elite high school where the parents expected you to perform, all of the coaches expected you to perform, the teachers expected you to perform, and the the kids took that on. The vast majority of the kids took that on as, you know, I got to perform at something. If I'm not good at at academics, I got to be good at football. If I can't be good at football, I got to be good at base. I got to be good at something because everyone here is good at something. Mm -hmm. It was almost like, you know, we had gone on into the real world and uh, we knew that when we were around each other, we didn't need to add any pressure. And so that just flipped the script on my whole childhood, turning it from, you know, I was raised in this like hostile environment where I couldn't trust anybody to, I was raised in an environment where I was completely surrounded by love. And 
or what developed into love, right? Yes. I, I mean, it's a, it's a complicated, and I, I had my 30th, um, and I did a podcast on it with just me to talk about it. What, what, I, what I always want people to reflect on, it, you're dealing with other teenagers at the time yeah. that, that are making decisions based on a teen brain that's developing, yep. right? Based on peer pressure and a thousand other consequences. Yep. So to ever hold somebody, I can't say you can't hold accountable, sure. but for the way somebody treated you and they were 16, you got to really evaluate that because yeah. they're evolving, developing human too, and they were just a kid. Yeah, I mean that's a reality. Yeah, right. I'm not letting people off the hook per se sure. for being mean, but yeah. but they're also a product of something that's happening to them. Yep. I mean, kids don't just bully because all of a sudden they decide to bully. Generally speaking, <laughs> right? Yeah. Something is going sideways at home, or mm -hmm. they're feeling undue peer pressure. So. I talked about that. I said, look, when I asked people coming in, I'm like, just give everybody a chance. Yeah. Right? You, you know, it's, you know, caterpillar to butterfly, right? Mm. So, um, okay, so that gets you through. So that was a cathartic experience for it was. you. Cause it you, was. You, you basically redeemed and taken a, a, I'd say, a um, pivotal look at the divorce. Yes. And, and had that flipped. Yeah. The narrative, and I love and love when narratives are flipped, and then just getting to look through high school at a different view, and and that's your their story is incredibly common, and because I talked to a bunch of people, I chaired mine, so I had the opportunity to talk to a bunch mm. of people, and so where does that take you? I mean, you were getting your full time coaching at this time, yes, and that just, and I, you can comment on you know what that looked like. You're working with what what type of individuals were you working with at that time? Well, that's I mean, actually it, quite recent. <laughs> I mean, if it's high achieving. Sure. So uh, generally speaking, I work with uh, salespeople. I work with entrepreneurs. I work with, uh, and, I, and if, if I'm working with someone who's in some type of executive role, it is typically at a smaller company. So 250 people or less, mm -hmm. generally speaking. I've dealt with people at you know, larger companies than that. Um, that's typically what I deal with. Uh, for a long time, my specialty was stress, overwhelm, and burnout, and motivation and high achievers. And that sure led to a lot of crazy things. There's a lot of different things that can cause, you know, because stress, overwhelm, and burnout, that can be caused by internal factors, uh, right? You can have someone who they're just stressed because of the way they perceive the world, because of how their narrative functions. Or you can have people who are stressed by external things. And we talk about this on podcasts twice now. It's interesting. Everybody's tolerance for stress is totally different, too. Absolutely. Right? <laughs> and what stresses them is totally different. You know, what's interesting, one of the two of the most resilient people that I worked with, one was, and, and neither of them would mind me sharing this information. I'm not going to say anybody's names or anything, but, but, but they've, they've shared their story publicly. One was a mother who put her husband in jail for molesting their 13-year-old daughter. And the other was a mother who had several children, uh, one of whom had died. Mm. Uh, and, she had, and she had other children with, with very serious medical conditions as well. And both of them were probably the two most resilient people that possibly that I've ever worked with. I'd have to think about it. I've worked with a lot of people. But, um, but they were among the most resilient, and they were in the most difficult circumstances. Mm -hmm. um, I dealt with other people who you know, were not nearly as resilient and were under much, uh, much lower external, externally obvious stress conditions. Um, you know, but we all are where we are, right? There's nothing, right. there's nothing wrong with being stressed by the realities of simply everyday life. Life is stressful as it is. Um, so it's not to, you know, judge anyone who's stressed and, you know, doesn't have their life completely collapsing. You know, I certainly have never faced anything like that, and I've dealt with my share of stress. Um, stress, overwhelm, and burnout, uh, work-life balance. I do a lot of work with relationships as well. In particular, and, and the reason, the way I actually became a, I don't know if expert's the right word, but the way one of my specialties became relationships was because it kept coming up so much with the people I was working with. Uh, you know, working with salespeople, entrepreneurs, uh, people who are in leadership positions. Um, <clears throat> what often happens, and you've talked about this as part of your story, is the, their business interferes with their relationship. 
or the other way around, the relationship interferes with their business. And so I needed, uh, you know, in order to help the people I was working with, I needed to learn real quick, how did you help people turn their relationships around and make their relationships work? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, that's really been a joy being able to see how that, how that can unfold and how people can, how people who've uh, really, really been hurt by each other uh, and been hurt by the way they approach their relationships, how they can heal and how they can grow together and how they can flourish and persist in, and then on that, but also but not just persist and flourish in their, in their relationships, but persist and flourish while having kids, persist and flourish while uh, growing their income, while growing their businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been really cool. So, you know, because one goal is to leave people with practical tips. And I hate, actually, I shouldn't say that because tips is, is not a great term. Sure. But, but practical advice. Um, and I say that because I have a golf instructor and he said, I'm not here to give you tips. You get those <laughs> out of a golf digest magazine. Yeah. Right. I'm here to help you and give you solid advice. So I retract that. But w- what, is, what is a common, in, in relationships, work, this may be difficult, but what is, what is a common um, theme of what somebody needs to do to just begin to get things right, quote-unquote right, right? Sure. So is that, and, and what I would go with that is, you know, I think everyone at some point has to stop being a victim. I mean, that to me is a yes. common, yes. right? You can, right, you have to just, I, I told my, one of my nephews who was going a little sideways, I said, all that I ask is that you own your S-H-I-T. Sure. Right? I'm like, just own it. <laughs> yeah. right? we, we have to start there. Yeah. Um, and even when bad things happen to you, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't know, just looking for that. You know, what, what's a, what's a, is there a baseline where you start with people to some extent? I think, and knowing that everything's different. Sure, everything. sure. I, I think one, I think the most important thing is the setting of expectations that get ready to work. I mean, if you want those five Fs, it is so much work to get your finances right. right. It is so much work to get your fitness right. It is so much work to get your family right. And I think, you know, one of my, uh, I know a, a, a relationship therapist who does an audio program that I really like. And one of the things he says is, you know, we, if we were in a sports team, or if we were uh, playing a musical instrument, even if you were playing as an amateur, you were not getting paid for it. You would practice and you would practice on a regular basis. But then you show up for marriage and you've not practiced anything. You show up for a relationship, you've not practiced anything other than whatever you practiced in the previous relationships. You know, we, don't, we don't get even one class on how to do relationships right. Um, and same thing for parenting. Yeah, so l- let me interject there. You know I have host the Simple Talk, which is yeah. you were there last night. I, that's what even really started it was I got beyond being upset at my father when I realized he had no tools whatsoever. Mm. No one ever, literally his father did not mm-hmm. talk. Well, he lost his father when he was five, but that generation, no one talked to him about how to be a father. Yeah. Right, and even back then it was worse. It was you know the Mad Men days. You go to work, you come home at six, you have a highball and smoke a cigarette and go to bed, right? Yeah. I mean, so I have to give him the grace that he had no tools. Yes. Right, to, to talk. To, I, I ne- no one ever talked to me about marriage, like ever. Yeah. I mean, Lizzie, I did a, a church marriage class, which is usually helpful, but no one prior to that had ever talked to me about this is what it looks like to be a good husband. Yeah. That's what I talked about Doug Hudson just saying, you know, the whole holding the mirror in my face, would you be late to a business lunch, yet you're late yeah. to dinner at your home every night? I'm like, yeah. now wait a sec. Yeah. Never thought about that. Exactly, which is which is why I got so turned on when I ran into this personal development stuff. Yeah, because I was like, oh my gosh, this is someone telling me how to be a good husband, concretely, yeah. not just being like, well, you should, you know, love her like Jesus loves the church. Like, right. What exactly does that mean, man? Like, like you know, yeah, come right. on, dude. Yeah, <laughs> and you, yeah. you know, um, same thing with like with like my health, right? Concretely being like, you know. We, this is how this is how you go about doing this. Right. So I think one of the first things is really just to realize like it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, and to have that expectation, it's going to be work, and work's not always fun. Um, you know that doesn't mean it's never fun, but it's not all fun. Um, 
And I always feel that a consistent theme is, and I think you'd agree, boy, trying to change other people is a really bad plan. Mm-hmm. Not for you, but mm-hmm. in a relationship. I mean, change yourself. You know, okay, I've, I've got a really interesting thought about that that I that I came up that I came across recently that really really made me think. I was listening to uh, uh, my wife and I are going through a little. Uh, it's called Ready Set Love. It's a marriage improvement program, and one of the things that the guy said was to think less in terms of yourselves as individuals and think more in terms of we and think of yourselves as a single unit, Mm -hmm. which is really, really hard to do with the way our culture's trained us to think so individually. And so the idea would be, let's say you've got something like, I don't know, you've got disagreement over finances, for example. Instead of it basically being, well, here's how I screwed up the finances and here's how you screwed up the finances, Hmm. you know, and everybody's got to own their stuff. Instead, I'd be like, we did this and we can do better. And that has shifted my thinking profoundly. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things he said is, you know, you can, you can improve yourself as a person and have your, and, and it's possible that you would do that and your marriage would not improve. Right. And I've experienced that before. Where you know my my wife is a coach as well, and and so she, I've had a, I've had a where she'll go through like a whole coaching program, and then I could just see like you know she's she's doing all this stuff, and she's she's calmer, and she's clear, and this that and the other, uh, and I'm growing, uh, but we're we're still fighting over the same stuff. It's like we're not growing, and it's because we're not growing as a paired unit. I've also had it where I've been on teams with people who are people who. I would probably not want to hang out with, might not be, not, not be particularly compatible with, and not the kind of people I would necessarily be friends with or whatever, but I love the fact that that person is on the team because of the way we work together as a group of three or five or eight or 12 or whatever it is. And so there's a, when you're entering into more than one person, it's not just a question of what is the value of each of us as individuals. It's, it's how are we relating as a single entity, either as a couple or as, a, you know, you have your, your team at Benchmark. Mm-hmm. How are we interacting as a team, right? And this is how you see, like, how, you know, uh, people don't get, uh, don't get excited about all-star games, right? Yeah. Because you've got all these all-stars, but I they're not, they're not taught to work as a team. And same thing with that, that, yeah. that Miracle movie, right? You've got all those guys who, uh, you know, none of them were famous guys but they were taught to work as a team. And so the team that they became became special. And so thinking of your marriage in that way, it's a totally different way. Yeah. You know, it. Jeff Warren did something about two or three years ago, the, the head pastor of Parkes Baptist church, check him out. He's awesome. Um, he said, I'm going to challenge you when you go home today and for the rest of the week, just to your spouse or anyone in your family text or say, what can I do to help you today or this week? Mm. It was profound within our household. With just the fact that Lizzie would even ask meant the world to me. Mm. I'm like, it'd be awesome if you could go pick up the dry cleaning because I'm underwater. Mm. But that's so simple. But yeah. that's what I'm. That's your point of being on the team. If you're really on a team, you're it's thinking. Not like, Will you go do this? Yeah. Or here's what you're internalizing. I'm so damn swamped, and I got to go pick up the dry cleaning, and no one will help me. Exactly. And exactly. I haven't, and I haven't asked for the help. But more importantly. If you're it, if I start asking Lizzie, what can I do to help her? Well, guess what? She might just start asking, what can I do to help you? Right? Yeah. It's a, it's a, that's a, that's awesome. Um, here's a quote I read. I said to my kids at seven thirty nine this morning. Uh, I said I just say this every day: be bold and brave. You fail all the you fail all the time, but you aren't a failure until you start blaming somebody else. Bum mm. Phillips. I thought that was really good. You fail all the time, but you aren't a failure until you start blaming someone else. That's <laughs> just true. But that's Absolutely. true in relationships and your team. And once again, it goes to this, this ownership Absolutely. aspect. There's, there's one other, you're asking for general tips. The, the, the other big general thing that I would say, and this is a very big general thing, but I think it's absolutely crucial, is to realize that whatever is in your life that you don't like, whether it's your marriage mm-hmm. or your financial situation or your body or if it's how you feel an emotion you have a thought you have it didn't come from nowhere and i and i run into a lot of people who act like it did you know just kind of felt i don't know i'm just angry all the time that's just kind of who i am i'm an angry guy 
No, <laughs> that came from somewhere, right? And the more we can understand where things come from, the more power we have to work with them. Now, understanding alone is, is often not enough, right? You run into someone, I know exactly where it came from. It came from this, and I don't know what to do about that. And that's where things get a little bit more complicated. But, um, you know, if I could only impart two broad things, it would be I realize that whatever it is you want to change in your life, it's going to take a lot of work, um, which doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be terrible or that you're not going to get progress along the way. But it's, you know, change isn't easy, but life isn't easy any, anyway. You know, what my, my mom was a uh, sales executive for Samsung. And one of the things she often used to say is, pay me now or pay me later. You know, you can either pay up front through hard work, through doing things right the first time, or you can pay it back later with regret. And, you know, and if you, when you're paying it later, you're paying interest, you're paying penalties, you're, you know, dodging calls from creditors and whatever yeah. else. It's more expensive to pay it later. You know, because you're going to have to pay it either way. You can't just not pay. That's not an option. That's incredible. Jeff Warren said something in church Christmas Eve. Uh. You can bow to God now, or you can bow to him later. Mm -hmm. It's much easier if we go ahead and bow now, because <laughs> being brought to your knees... When, Amen. Right? It's yeah. very similar to that. I, I, that's yeah. funny that you said that. It's that his, and, and to quote Jeff again, um, and I do encourage a lot of you guys to feel free to visit our church. We have a very powerful and, and spiritual leader at our church. Okay, so um, I want we're, we're going to get tight on time here in a sure. minute. Um, I want I do not want to delve into this. I may have to have you back on this. You said basically you know, understanding where things come from. Yeah. A whole nother more complicated situation is that I do believe there's spiritual warfare at play all the time too. Okay. Right. So that to me is even right. Sometimes your thought, this is a frightening belief, but sometimes sure. your thoughts are not your own. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, I think we probably align on that to some yeah, extent, absolutely. but that's a whole nother animal. I mean, I'm not yeah. talking no, listeners. Don't lose your mind. I'm not talking about exorcisms or anything. Sure. I'm, you know, whether you believe in God or not, you know sometimes there's voices that you shouldn't listen to. Who's thinking hear. that, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> so I think that that is a that is an underrated component of mm -hmm. right. Like yesterday when I'm building up simple talk, I got 80 men. I was beginning to have anxiety. Um, I mean, this bizarre. Mm -hmm. My car mm -hmm. broke down driving down Lovers Lane and stopped working. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I was getting really pissed. Mm. And, I, and everything was going sideways. Hey, at least you had the dry cleaning taken care of. Uh, yeah. But I just realized, okay, the devil doesn't want this to go down. Yeah. I think at least recognizing, you know, the, the first part of winning a battle is realizing you're in one. Sure. At least beginning to recognize that there are darker forces at times at play. You know, in my... Do you, do you believe in spiritual warfare? Sure, sure, sure. I, I, don't, I don't dispute anything you said there. Yeah. Having said that, in my experience, regardless of whether the thought's mine or not, it's in my head, which means I, ha I now have responsibility. Right, you have to take ownership. You know, and so, and so it's, not, it's not that I mean to like, you know, say like, a, you know. You aren't dismissing it, but yeah. Well, yeah, and I get, yeah, I'm not dismissing what you're saying, but in my experience, whether it's from me or not, because because what happened to me at some at one point was I was getting obsessed. or was this thought from me or from some some something something outside me or whatever, and it, it it never really yielded any fruit. Trying to think that way, really, regardless of whether that thought's mine or not, it's a thought in my head, and I have a choice of whether or not to listen to it. I have a choice of what to do about it. So I would say I agree, and I think really to go back to your you know your point when. Your parents got a divorce. Yeah. What happens, I believe, and I'm not a psychologist, nor do I play one on TV, but <laughs> there are cracks or portals or that open doorways, mm -hmm. right? So it's still, no matter how you look at it, spiritual warfare or not, sure. it's going back some, what I call a generational curse that, that mm -hmm. was set in place. Mm -hmm. The beauty of you fixing yourself mm. is you get to stop that generational curse mm -hmm. the, of that pain that you felt from a divorce. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and then that idea of a generational curse, I mean, really simply put, that's just that, that things that happen to our parents often get passed to us. No question. I mean, it's yeah. why you, I always feel for, I, this sounds, 
odd oftentimes I feel for people that abuse children only in the sense of that they were almost always abused. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They should suffer for their crimes, but sure. but once again, that, they're totally broken. It's mm-hmm. all they know. Yeah. So anyway, um, we don't we won't go too far down that path. Sure. So let, let's talk briefly about what you are currently doing. Sure. Meaning, you know, what does David Scoggins do today for work? Okay, sure. Now so, I know because you're coaching me, but to <laughs> let the so I I do one on one coaching. Uh, you know where I'm doing uh, regular calls with people, and we're establishing goals. We're figuring out what they really want. I mean, coaching at the end of the day is about change. So people who are working with a coach, they want to change something. And that could be they want to make more money. They want to change something about their business. They want to make sure that they hit their goals for the year. It could be that they, uh, you know, they want to make the same amount of money working fewer hours. It could be that they're dealing with uh, you know, a new family, a new relationship. It could be really anything. Anything that someone wants to have that open space where they won't be judged and where they can move past the things that hold them back and really set their life up the way that they want their life to be. And that's really what coaching is about. I also have a group coaching program and I have a podcast uh, and that's pretty much and it. And so on the coaching side, because you referenced, but you are not a counselor. No, no. So when you meet with a couple, are you acting? It's very, it is not common that I meet with husband and wife simultaneously, but, but I do it sometimes. But are you coaching them in a relationship? Yes. Okay, so you are. So, so that gets into some technical stuff, but the short answer would be uh, there are coaches for everything you can imagine. But you would still possibly encourage them to go to a marriage counselor. Oh, uh, yeah, p- potentially, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I, to me, it appears that your real growth, to some extent, is in executive coaching. Yes. But what I love about what you do um, is, one, you bring in Jesus. Yes. Not an, I mean, I'm sure you work with plenty of um, people. Yeah, I would say probably it, over my career, probably 75% of people. But for somebody like me, it's just great because we can we – can, we can go there if, if, the if it's where if it's where someone wants to go. We can go there. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and, and we'll see what our relationship looks like. We're figuring that out. David did come to my retreat, and it was very good. And had calls with my whole team, and so that was exciting for us. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna circle back to that. One one question I wanted to ask because I, I like as we get close to the end to ask this because I think it's really important. You you answered it to some extent because the reunion actually addresses this. I think 16 is an important age for I just I picked that age because mm-hmm. 18 you're you're kind of already some hard decisions are have already Makes been sense. formed mm-hmm. so that 15 what would you tell your 16 year old self <laughs> How much time do I get with him <laughs> uh, well, right now you get about a minute. Okay. You, get as, you really now, get as much time as you want with your uh, 16-year-old self. One thing I would tell him is that uh, everything that he has ever wanted, he'll get. Because I, I had, uh, you know, really all I really wanted was uh, was what I, uh, mainly what I found in my wife, Amanda. She's she's amazing. Um and you know, between that and, and and my faith, and you know, that was really all that I wanted and felt like I didn't have when I was that age. So, in a way, you tell yourself, "Just hang in there; it's all going to be okay." Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's also what I think about. And, and I would I say much more than that. I I might, you know, setting aside all the you know, don't want to mess up my future stuff from the movies. I think I might share the whole story and it'd be interesting to see how you would respond. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's do the fast five here. Okay. Which are, it's the, what's the show based on? Faith, family, friends, fitness, and finances. Okay. It's a word or a sentence. So I won't hold you to a word oh, because I've done this okay. myself and it can be difficult. But it's really a little bit spontaneous. Okay. But I just love to catch people's reactions. Lightning um, round. And, yeah, exactly. This is a lightning round. And oftentimes, I call it the fast five. Oftentimes, people um, they ended up finding a a, a a you know theme through all of them. Sure. Okay. So, faith. Mm, Jesus. Family. 
Oh, the word that comes to mind is Amanda, my wife. <laughs> Friends. Mm. Love. Fitness. Mm. Fitness. Mm. Energy. Finances. Work. Nice. Yeah, it is work, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it you know, is so I, much I, work. I, I want to put this out there because I've never, when you were going, that sometimes I'm processing as you're doing them. Friends for me, the word that I think would resonate with you is evolving. Because mm. your friends all evolved from high school that you thought about them. And then our, we didn't know each other, what, 24 months ago? True. Right? So it's a beautiful thing. It's the way God works. <laughs> so, um, okay, how do, how do people find David Scoggins? Sure. And are you open to new clients? And mm -hmm. where would you like to, would it, you want people, this is an opportunity for you to talk about you a little bit, you know, Facebook, okay. Instagram, LinkedIn, okay. and then how could somebody actually engage you? Sure. My, my podcast is easy to find. Uh, it's the TMP Coaching Podcast with David Scoggins. Mm -hmm. uh, it's on all of the major podcast platforms. Um, <clears throat> and as far as, and, and of course in the show notes and things like that is all my, my contact information is available there. Uh, I've got all my contact information on my LinkedIn. I'm not hard to find on LinkedIn. Um, Facebook might be a little bit trickier. I mean, I can give out my email address. That's, that's totally up to you. Yeah, if someone wants to reach out to me, it'd be david, D-A-V-I-D, at scogginsgroup.com, S-C-O-G-G-I-N-S-G-R-O-U-P.com. Well, David, it's been awesome having you on. Thank you. Um, I'm excited about what this next year holds for me and you for my team at work, for my life, for your life. God has ordained you. I believe that. And what I want to say is, God bless you, David Scott. Thank you. I received that. Thank you. <laughs>